Welcome to the British History Podcast. My name is Jamie, and this is episode 30, What is Best in Life? This show is free and independent due to member support. And as thanks for helping keep the community going, I offer members-only content, including extra episodes and rough transcripts. If you're interested in supporting the show and helping us out, you can do so over at thebritishhistorypodcast.com. And thank you very much to Nigel, Elizabeth, and Gordon for signing up already. So it was 360, and the Picts and Scotty had broken their agreement with the Romans, and they were plundering northern Britannia, as they were wont to do. Now due to, quote, past calamities, read, Paulus's behavior, the provinces were more than a little fragile. And let's actually halt for a second and mention the Scotty, because we haven't talked about them before. This was a tribe from northern Ireland that will later become much more important north of the Wall. And actually, we're going to talk a great deal more about them when we're doing our Scottish podcast, which I'm thinking about calling it Scottcast. Anyway, so we've got the Scotty who are attacking, and of course, we have the Picts who are attacking again. And Julian heard about this. Julian, he was still a Caesar at this point, was on the mainland, and he responded by sending one of his trusted generals, Lupicinus, to deal with the issue, along with four units from his army. Now, we don't know a lot about this conflict, but what we do know is that Lupicinus had been sent there in the winter. And any time you've got a wintertime dispatch, you know things are bad. And actually, Lupicinus was a very highly ranked general, higher than Theodosius, who we'll talk about later in the show. So all signs point to a very serious issue in Britannia. So Lupicinus set sail and arrived in Britannia. And when he reached London, he halted, being that it was winter and London was the nerve center of the island. And given London's central position, he must have been able to receive reports from all four provinces of Britannia on a fairly constant basis. So Lupicinus was figuring out what was going on. Meanwhile, Julian was having issues with his cousin and Augustus, Constantius II. It seems that Constantius II wanted Julian's best units to be transferred to him, two of which were already in Britannia dealing with the Picts. Constantius II was probably a bit concerned about Julian's popularity. He was kind of a popular guy. Not to mention that Constantius II did seem to have one hell of a grudge against Britannia. So if Britannia was under assault against the Picts, taking half of the army, and actually the best part of that half, away from Britannia, well, that would serve his rather petty goals as well. So all in all, asking for those two units was a bit of a twofer. The response to this demand was probably not what Constantius II expected, though. Julian was proclaimed emperor by his troops. Following this, there was a lot of stamping of feet and posturing, during which it seems that the issue with the Picts and the Scotties in the north was dealt with, and in the end, Julian managed to muster his forces and march to face Constantius II. But as luck would have it, Constantius died shortly thereafter, so Julian didn't have to fight a civil war and actually never had to meet his cousin in battle. Anyway, for our purposes, we once again have a single Roman emperor ruling over the empire, which of course includes Britannia. So, hooray. But at least he's not a teenager. He's nearly in his 30s, in fact, so at least he won't be all hormonal and nutty. And as I said before... The issue with the Picts and the Scotty had been dealt with, but we're not entirely sure how that happened. And for a little while, Britannia became slightly more peaceful. Slightly. But the Romano-Brits really could use a bit of a break. They'd had one hell of a decade. So during this period, Julian came out in the open about his paganism. 
and in turn, pagans were able to practice in the open throughout the empire. Though how people felt about this in Britannia isn't entirely clear. I'm sure there were quite a few pagans that learned their lessons and decided to keep their heads down for fear that the next emperor would be another anti-pagan firebrand. But by and large, the empire saw a revival of paganism, and there was an increase in religious tolerance for both pagans and for Christian heretics. Moreover, Julian cancelled the extensive privileges that had been given to the Christian members of the church, and demanded that they return temple property that they seized from the pagans. Things in Britannia, though not necessarily elsewhere, were comparatively peaceful and religiously tolerant around now. So in 364, it seems that barbarian raids in Britannia had started to increase. But with all the imperial dynastic struggles and uncertainty, there wouldn't have been a big Roman response. I mean, the attention of the emperor was focused elsewhere. So the coddled citizens of Britannia were once again getting dragged back into the harsh realities of the era. They were basically out on their own, they were getting attacked by the barbarians, and the Romans were just too busy to handle it. So it kind of sucked to be in Britannia. And then 367 rolls around. Recognize that song? Yeah, that's what you think it is. We've got a massive barbarian problem. And this one is way worse than Conan punching out camels. This is a full-blown war on multiple fronts. It's known as the Barbarian Conspiracy. And essentially what happened here is that the Picts, the Scotti, and the Atticotti made a joint attack on Britannia while the Franks and the Saxons attacked Gaul. This, by the way, was extremely rare, which was actually very lucky for Rome because Rome had always had a real problem fending off multiple simultaneous attacks. It just wasn't good at it. But generally, barbarians didn't group up together. But now they had done, and they all agreed that Rome had to go down. Things were not going well for the Romano-British at this point, and spoiler alert, things are going to go so badly, in fact, that Britannia will be lost to Rome for two years. An interesting thing here is that unlike most of this period, we actually know a decent amount about this event. That's thanks to the fact that the historian Ammianus was writing for the Emperor Theodosius I, and it was his father, Count Theodosius, who was sent in to deal with the situation in Britannia. So much like with Tacitus, we know a lot about the situation largely thanks to dumb luck and the writer's desire to suck up to his audience. But it wasn't just the amount of historical attention that it got that made the barbarian conspiracy unusual. It was also the fact that so many barbarians managed to carefully coordinate into a single attack upon the Romans. You had the Picts, the Scotti, the Franks, the Saxons, and the Atticotti, all involved. The Atticotti? You're probably wondering who they were, and actually, most historians are too. There aren't a ton of references to the Atticotti, but those that exist seem to indicate that they're Irish cannibals. So that's fun. So how could this have happened? How could we have had this many barbarians unify and attack at the same time, and also find weak points in the empire. Well, the Ariani, those Roman frontier scouts we spoke about last episode, were singled out by Ammianus for betraying the empire. 
So they were probably acting as spies for the barbarians, or at least Hamionus believed they were. Maybe they let the enemies of Rome know that the field armies had been weakened due to a new policy of strengthening frontier defenses, because that's something that happened. Or maybe the Ariane let the barbarians know that Rome really never had the manpower to handle large-scale attacks on multiple fronts. They could have told them just about anything. We really don't know what they said. We just know that they betrayed the empire. Also, we don't know a lot about what happened amongst the nations that arrayed against Rome. For example, we have no idea how these disparate groups gathered and organized. Having a mutual enemy is a powerful organizational tool, but there were geographical, linguistic, and cultural barriers to deal with. How did they overcome them? Unfortunately, we're just not sure. But we can be reasonably sure that there was at least one brilliant military mind who was also charismatic enough to gain the trust of so many disparate people and convince them to keep their plans secret, set aside their differences, and focus on their common goal. And I think we probably have a pretty good idea of what that common goal must have been. Conan, what is best in life? To crush your enemies, see them driven before you, and to hear a lamentation of their women. That is good. That is good. So the barbarians of the West, much like the barbarians of the East, were finally coming to realize their strength, and Rome would be forever changed by their growing power. Unfortunately for the Romano-Britons, they were no longer the wild Celtic warriors of the days of Caractacus and Boudicca. The Romano-Britons now behaved and thought much like any Roman citizen would. In fact, they were Roman citizens. So while they were the hosts to this barbarian party, they weren't exactly welcome there, if you catch my meaning. Anyway, regardless of how and why they did it, this barbarian conspiracy was initially quite successful. They quickly killed Nectaridus, who probably commanded forts along the Saxon shore, as well as shore forts along the west. And they ambushed and probably killed Philophades, who was probably the Duke's Britanniarum. Now consider the power of these two men. One was in charge of holding the coastal defenses on the island, and the other was in command of the bulk of the permanent forces of Britannia. And now at least one of them was dead, and probably both of them. And don't for a second think that these generals were alone when they were killed. A lot of Romans undoubtedly died as a result of these attacks. And maybe these attacks were a result of the Ariani betrayal. I mean, maybe the Ariani told the barbarians about the movements of important heads of state, and that would certainly qualify as a major betrayal. So now you've got the major heads of the military in Britannia gone. I mean, there was a chain of command in Britannia, so they weren't leaderless, but they certainly were taken down quite a notch. Meanwhile, forces scattered widely throughout Britannia and well south of the wall, laying waste to all they found. Signs of destruction at the wall indicate that it was definitely overrun. And Theodosius, who we'll meet shortly, says that frontier defenses were woefully inadequate. So the barbarians just flooded south and soon discovered that they were victorious. Any serious resistance was dealt with, and the island was theirs. So they split up into small bands and spread out throughout the countryside. Arson, pillage, murder, and all the horrors of war were now commonplace in Britannia. And the Roman soldiers that were still on the island deserted their posts. Oh, they claimed that they were on leave, 
but no one believed it then, and no one really believes it now. And once they deserted, they realized that they needed to get theirs while the getting was good. So many turned to banditry. So if you were a Romano-Briton, you weren't safe from anyone, and you had no one to turn to. The easy life that they had become accustomed to came crashing to a halt. Signs of widespread chaos and destruction are found in archaeological digs from this time. It was a bad time to be living in Britannia. While this was devastating for the island, the empire could have probably quickly rallied to its defense if it wasn't for the fact that the Franks and Saxons began to harry the land and naval forces in Gaul at the same time. The intent was clearly to distract the continental forces as well as to make crossing the channel very difficult for any relief armies. So the Emperor of the West, Valentinian I. Yeah, we have a new emperor. We're changing them like socks at this point. And this guy was a bit of a firebrand Christian, so bad luck for any of the pagans who thought they were safe to practice out in the open. And he tended to promote brutal, uncivilized men to positions of power. But on the other hand, he was pretty anti-aristocratic and tried to help the poor, so I guess you take the good with the bad. Well, anyways, so Valentinian I was in northern Gaul at around this time, and he was fighting the Alamanni and was based at the center of the Gallic prefecture. From there, he almost certainly had the most up-to-date information on what was going on in Britannia. And it was when he was marching from Trier to Atun, where Magnentius was proclaimed emperor, actually, that he heard that Britannia was lost to a combined attack by the barbarians. But he didn't set sail for Britannia. The Saxons and Franks did their job very well. The emperor was tied down in Gaul. And actually, we don't know how long it took for news to reach the emperor, given the fact that piracy was part of the plan, and thus ships probably couldn't have easily made it across the channel. So the news from Britannia might have been delayed significantly, giving the barbarians more time to establish their hold on the region. They probably had already run over all the strong points and held all of the island at this point. So the emperor didn't want to give up Britannia, but, you know, he had to deal with what was going on on the continent. So while the emperor dealt with the issues in Gaul, he sent Severus, the commander of his guard, to deal with the situation. But Severus was recalled before he ever got past Boulogne, and he was replaced by Jovinus, another officer. But then Emperor Valentinian became dangerously ill while he was at Amiens, so Jovinus was recalled. It was just one problem after another, and it was all keeping relief from reaching the shores of Britannia. So during all this instability and back and forth and whatnot, the raiders were having a field day in Britannia. No one was spared. And keep in mind that the Romano-British were accustomed to a rather peaceful and pastoral lifestyle. War in their front yard was not something they were ready for. It was chaos. And horrific. And finally, Valentinian sent Theodosius late in the campaigning season to deal with the troubles in Britannia. Accompanying Theodosius were four top-of-the-line units from the field army to deal with the issue. And actually, two of these units served in Lupicinus's expedition to Britannia less than a decade earlier. So Theodosius reached Boulogne and crossed the channel. Then he landed at Richborough, just like Aulus Plautius did back in the first century. Remember Alice Plautius? It feels like ages since we were talking about him. Well, anyway, once again we have a fleet landing at Richborough. 
but this time it's much smaller. Four units of the field army is not a tremendous landing force. And he's also lacking war elephants. But thankfully, as we mentioned earlier, the barbarian army was now dispersed into raiding bands. So despite the small size of the Roman army, it was likely to be larger than any resistance they'd immediately encounter. And of course, he did immediately encounter resistance from the raiders when he landed. And as expected, they didn't put up too much of a fight given the size disparity and the fact that they were weighed down with booty. And of course, it wasn't very long before Theodosius and his men were wintering in London, along with some recovered booty. And unlike Carousius, remember him? Well, unlike Carousius, Theodosius made a point of trying to return the stolen loot to its rightful owners. This, in addition to just happiness of being freed from the barbarian threat, led Theodosius to be welcomed into London like a conquering hero. So does this remind you of another event that happened in London? Yeah, it's a lot like when Constantius killed the Franks in London. All this stuff repeats itself over time. Anyway, so while in London over winter, he used his time effectively, as well as probably having sausage rolls because, well... It was around Christmas time, and what's Christmas without sausage rolls? So in addition to some excellent food, he spent the winter pardoning soldiers for their desertion and reorganizing them into a fighting force. That decision isn't too surprising when you consider he crossed the channel with only around 2,000 men. And while he could hold off raiding bands, once the barbarians realized what was going on, they might organize and they'd have to hold off warriors from five nations or at least five loosely organized groups, as well as any remaining legionaries who turned to banditry. So he really didn't have much of a choice. He had to pardon the soldiers because he needed to bolster his ranks quickly. He also organized the civil administration and appointed a new vicar. It's not clear what happened to the old one, but I'm guessing it was nothing good considering the whole barbarian conspiracy. Things for the citizens of London might have started to look like they were turning around. I mean things were starting to look normal again. I mean, you had a Roman army nearby, you had a normal administration being propped up again. Things were turning around. However, the barbarians were still large and in charge, so to speak. But that was a bit of a double-edged sword for the barbarians because it made their armies in the field careless and overconfident. And Theodosius took every opportunity to take advantage of that. All throughout 368, there were both land and sea battles between the barbarians and Theodosius' forces. Consider what Theodosius was up against. Against him were vast forces from a variety of nations who had already proven that they could defeat Rome. And on his side was a small force sent from the continent that was supported by the local defeated soldiers. Soldiers that were so demoralized that they turned to banditry. So imagine the force of personality this man must have had to bring them back into line and to prevent that sense of despair that at least some of the deserters must still have had from spreading. I mean, despair is contagious. So what we're seeing here is a portrait of a man who must have been a heavyweight, both as far as his charismatic qualities as well as his military mind. And through his effort, eventually, peace was established, and the Ariani, the frontier scouts that turned against Rome, were disbanded, and a new Dux Britanniarum, whose name was Dulcitius, was appointed. With the Ariani abolished, though, who was holding the wall? It wouldn't have been a peasant militia. Those didn't pop up into Rome until after Britannia was dumped out of the empire. 
There must have been someone on the wall. After all, I find it hard to believe that the Romano-British and the Picts were all chummy following this conspiracy. You'd have to have someone there keeping an eye on the Picts. And it would have to be someone that could be trusted, since the Ariani were such a miserable failure. But as for who was actually sent there, we don't know. I'm pretty sure that someone was, though. So one last thing about the Ariani before I let them go. Some of the early kings north of the Wall used Roman names, and it's not clear why. It might have been due to the spread of Christianity. I mean, the spread of Christianity does seem more likely than any sort of friendly relationships between the tribes and Rome. After all, there's no evidence of trade following the barbarian conspiracy. But there's another possibility. The use of Roman names might have been due to integration of the Ariani. After all, they abandoned their posts and sided with the tribes. Perhaps they had a significant influence upon them, and that might account for the use of the red cloak as a symbol of authority up there. Anyway, something else interesting happened during this period of chaos. Apparently, an entire British province was lost and then had to be recaptured by Theodosius, and then it was named Valentia. Valentia? What province was that? Was it one of the four? If so, which one was it? Or was it a new province that we don't know about? I mean, what on earth is going on here? Well, it's not entirely clear, and thus there's a lot of argument about it. I'm not going to go into the specifics of each theory, because I promise you that the level of minutia involved will bore almost everyone but me. But here's the short version of what I suspect was going on. First, there weren't four provinces at this time. There were probably five. That's because Ammianus didn't mention creating a new province, but rather regaining and renaming one. And he didn't reference any of the known provinces in connection to Valentia. So basically what we've got here is a fifth unknown province that had to be retaken. So where was it? Well, we're not entirely sure, but we know that Cumbria had taken one hell of a beating. So perhaps Cumbria had been split into two provinces sometime earlier, and one of those was Valentia. Anyway, wherever it was, we're told it was retaken, which gives us another clue as to what happened. You see, in response to Theodosius' victory over Valentia, there was an ovation for retaking the territory. Now, while an ovation was given to Aulus Plautius for his conquest of Britannia back in the first century, Times had changed, and now ovations were reserved generally for victories that Rome wasn't particularly proud of, such as victories over fellow Romans. After all, real glory was only gained by defeating foreigners. So this suggests that Theodosius didn't recover the province from invading barbarians. So if it wasn't barbarians, who was holding the territory? Well, into this mess comes a reference to an exile named Valentinus. Not Emperor Valentinian. I know, Romans can be a pain in the butt with their names. So we're talking about an exile named Valentinus, not Emperor Valentinian. So for our purposes of keeping things straight for you, we're going to call Valentinus, the guy who wasn't the emperor, well, we're going to start calling him Val. So we have Emperor Valentinian, who gets to say Emperor Valentinian, and Valentinus, who is now Val. So Val was in a bit of trouble. We don't know what he did, but it must have been pretty bad since he was condemned to death. 
but perhaps due to his brother-in-law's intercession with the emperor, his brother-in-law was essentially an aristocratic witch hunter with a reputation of accusing the rich and powerful of practicing magic. And the emperor was a Christian who had no sympathy for pagans or the aristocracy, so it's quite possible that his brother-in-law was able to exert some influence over the emperor. Anyway, so the point is, Val was going to die, but he had a brother-in-law who had some sway with the emperor. And eventually his sentence was commuted to exile. So it kind of seems like, you know, his brother-in-law probably had a hand in that. However, exile wasn't all wine and roses for Val. I mean, he was exiled to one of the deadliest and, now, shittiest provinces in the empire. Do you remember when being sent to Britannia was an honor? And how the rich and powerful would actually go there when there was trouble elsewhere? Well, those days were pretty much over. We're back to the old point of view that Britannia was a place to stuff troublemakers and embarrassments. And Val wasn't the only embarrassment to be sent to Britannia. It was now becoming a prison for all sorts of exiles that the Imperial Circle didn't want to kill, but certainly didn't want to have around either. So you have tons of political prisoners being exiled to a remote island that has a habit of insurrection. <laughs> what could go wrong? Well, our buddy Val wasn't going to look a gift horse in the mouth, and when he arrived in Britannia, he was ready to go, and set about fomenting rebellion. But that didn't last too long. He didn't have enough troops to hold off the Roman military that was already mobilized and powerful in the region thanks to the barbarian conspiracy, so his attempted rebellion soon was destroyed. Val and his buddies were handed over to the new dukes, Dulcitius, and were executed, but the number of executions were actually kept deliberately low to prevent another Paulus situation that can spread into another rebellion. And that hesitancy, incidentally, suggests that Britannia had hit a point with all its suffering that it was basically just a bomb waiting to go off, and Theodosius recognized that danger and was trying his best to maintain order without also enraging the locals. So, you know, you have a pretty angry British population. And we also now have a fifth province, Valentia, that's somewhere in Britannia, but we're not sure where, but might be somewhere near Cumbria. And now Theodosius was sort of a rock star in imperial circles. After all, in addition to crushing the barbarian forces, Val was crushed, and the province which he took, which was renamed Valentia, which referred to both the emperor Valentian and his brother Valens, was recaptured. And then, victorious Theodosius departed Britannia. Now we're told that Theodosius also restored cities and forts, notably adding large towers and wide ditches to town defenses that would allow for ballista use. But it's not entirely clear whether or not he was the one who actually did that. After all, he was in and out of Britannia in pretty short order. He might have given the command, but left the overseeing of the work to other lesser officers especially since much of the reconstruction was dated after the war was over, which would put the date of reconstruction at around 369, which we're pretty sure Theodosius was long gone by then. Anyway, things would never be the same again in Britannia. Over the course of this story that we've covered here, the prosperous island that we've come to know has been broken. It's no longer the safe haven for the wealthy. It's just as war-torn, if not more so, as its neighbors. Villas were abandoned. Even the towns that had popped up around the forts were dismantled and abandoned, and with only a few exceptions, they were never re-established. 
The events of the last almost 30 years have changed Britannia forever. Oh yeah, also during this, Londinium was renamed to Augusta, but I'm not convinced that anyone who was living there used that new name. New names never seem to stick very well for people who were around beforehand. For example, I bet Sting's old friends still call him Gordon. Or Gordo. But regardless, Rome was once again in control of Britannia, and reconstruction had begun. But this time, there was absolutely no work north of Hadrian's Wall. The official opinion appears to be, F*** the Picts. And I think I'll stop right there. Now, as I mentioned before, there's a new forum, so you should go check it out. It's at www.thebritishhistorypodcast.com forum. And don't forget, if you're a member, check your email because I'm sending you some instructions on how to get your fancy title and also access to the members-only forums, which contain the rough transcripts of the episodes. So make sure you check your email. Anyway, thank you very much for listening. See you next time.